When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From movie set to multiplex, it's the business of film with James Cameron Wilson. Well, we used to look up in the sky and wonder at our place in the stars. Now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt. Quite frankly, everybody else has an interest in sending you to the electric chair. I'm rude. This is Simon Rose. Joining me for the Business of Film this week is James Cameron Wilson as we dissect what's been happening at the UK box office. Um, James, we're recording this as uh, in the middle of a heat wave, which is not normally great for the box office. I'm not sure last weekend was quite so hot, but we are forecasting, or at least they are forecasting, almost record temperatures ever in the UK. Cinema managers must be a bit worried. Indeed. Uh, it was incredibly hot when I went to the cinema last Friday to see the big new Marvel release. Mm. Um, but yet it was very well attended. And I was just amazed, in spite of everything, that people are still flocking to the cinema. Was there aircon inside? Was it cool inside the cinema? It was cool inside the cinema, yeah. That, well, as we've discussed on many occasions, because Americans have got well used to escaping from the heat of summer by going to the cinema. So perhaps people are realising that most cinemas these days do have air conditioning and will be a bit cooler than outside. Well, I think the problem with England and the United Kingdom is we don't often get nice weather like this. So people take the opportunity to have barbecues and do outdoor pursuits, which they normally wouldn't. Whereas in America, particularly in the Midwest and California, they've got lots more sunshine than we do. True, I suppose, though, um, I don't know about you, but I'm finding some of the very hot days actually a little bit uncomfortable. Oh, you're so English, Simon. <laughs> anyway, uh, in spite of the stunning weather that we had last weekend, mm -hmm. the box office actually went up almost 3% from the previous weekend. Mm -hmm. Largely, um, well, a lot of the cinema's films did suffer horrendously, as you will see shortly. Mm -hmm. There was one new film that opened... Well, there are quite a few new films, but the one at number one called Thor, Love and Thunder, made 12.3 million quid in three uh, days. Sorry, 12.3 million. Wow, that's quite a big number. Well, yeah, particularly if you think in the same period that Thor Ragnarok made 7.3 million pounds. But then the new Doctor Strange film made 14 0.9 million, just shy oh, of 15 grand, at 11 fewer cinemas, which means that Benedict Cumberbatch has more box office muscle than Chris Hemsworth. Mm. Mm. Yes. Well, maybe after the last film, he won't anymore, but we'll see. We'll see. Well, so. as, I, as I settled down to watch the fourth Thor film, I kept on reminding myself that the original character was the product of a comic strip. While the original God of Thunder originated in the Norse myths, the Marvel version was a superhero 
in keeping with such cartoonish, heroic figures as Iron Man, Captain America, mm. and the Incredible Hulk. And just as the ancient myths have been open to a myriad of interpretations, so the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been bent into all sorts of shapes. The difference, though, with films featuring human actors, however awesome their superpowers, is that they bring a humanity to their characters. That was the appeal of Clark Kent in the original Superman. In his human guise, he was awkward, gauche, and smitten with Lois Lane. There is nothing awkward or gauche about Chris Hemsworth's Thor, even though Love and Thunder is essentially a rom-com with massive set pieces. Not that you would think so from the excellent opening scene. Even before the Marvel credit roll, we see the shadow of a man and a child in his arms projected onto the baked earth of a desert floor. As I remember it, there was not even a note of music. And then we see the manifestation of the shadow, a heavily tattooed, scarred, bald man protect, protecting his young daughter against the ravages of the desert elements. It was a minute or two when I realized that he was actually Christian Bale in another extraordinary transformation, and not Vin Diesel. Vin Diesel does turn up later in the film, but only as the voice of Groot, who we just heard then. But it's a fleeting vocal cameo. I wonder how much he got paid for saying that. <laughs> Back to Bale. That's probably, I, probably, if you think about it, probably the most amount per word Probably yes. Cinema. A M Groot. Groot. <laughs> Three words. Yes. Yeah. But but back to Bale. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say, <laughs> as if we have, because we've still got to see the title of the film that the little girl dies in Bale's arms. This is a powerful, arresting opening. We then see Bale tramp through the desert before spotting an oasis ahead. And this really is the oasis of oases a sanctuary erupting with flora, fruit, and drinking water. And Bale, whose character is called Gore, by the way, takes his fill of the natural nourishment around him. But Gore was not meant to live, and the god to whom he worshipped in the desert, Rapu, now appears before him as an entity made of gold. Rapu is none too happy that Gore is helping himself to his bounty, and there is an altercation. The bullet points are that Rapu says, suffering for your gods is your only purpose. And then Gore swears to rid the universe of all deities, which of course would include Thor. Title, role. We now have a quick summary narrated by the film's co-writer and director, Taika Waititi, as if reading a bedtime story. It's meant to be funny, and to cut a very, very epic story short, Thor has shed the unsightly pounds he gained in Avengers Endgame, bad bod, as it's described here, and is the muscle-bound god that female fans around the world have come to lust after. Natalie Portman is back as Jane Foster, and we come to realise that in spite of the separation of eight years, seven months, and six days, they are still smitten with each other. We then have a montage set to ABBA's Our Last Summer, 
reminding us of the romantic highlights of their courtship. So this really is a love story, hence the title. Mm. But it's also a full-out pantomime, albeit with some incredibly dark passages. Not only has Gore become a child killer, the second appearing in the current box office 10, but Jane is in the fourth stage of cancer, which is even made a joke of. And as she rushes to Thor's aid in her new incarnation as mighty Thor, she is draining her body's power to fight her terminal disease. I really couldn't get a hold of the film's tone, but for the most part, it is played for laughs. So essentially, at $250 million, it is the most expensive rom-com ever made. There are some amazing set pieces, not least the so-called Omnipotence City, where Zeus hangs out, the latter played by a bloated Russell Crowe with a Russian-Australian accent. But as with all CGI-heavy films, the fight sequences really don't make any sense. At least the sight of characters leaping across the screen with scant regard for gravity Mm. have no human traction. The good news, though, is that I enjoyed the film more than Minions, The Rise of Gru. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's damning with faint praise, James, isn't it? You loathe the Minions and everything to do with them. This is true. Now, I was told, I think it was the Sunday Times, that gave this a five-star review and said it was the best Marvel film ever. And when I came out of the screening, I was waylaid by the duty manager who said, I'm James, I'm dying to know, is it as bad as everybody is saying? And apparently people have been complaining to the cinema how awful it is because they wanted a a superhero movie and what they got is a pantomime with a lot of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It's Mm. Monty Python goes to Asgard. It's not the then, first time. Not the first time you've mentioned Monty Python. Well, no, 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 and and ancient Scandinavian myths. I mean, it wasn't that long Viking, ago at all? Yeah, yes. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, um, and then, of course, I saw the BBC review of it, and I think the critic uh, Mark Kermode actually hated it more than I did. So, I am not alone. But oh, I'm just amazed. Well, I, had, that... I had seen a good review, and I was actually looking forward to it. I'd almost booked tickets. I'm rather glad now that I haven't. Right. Where did you see a good review of it? Uh, Telegraph, I think. I can't okay. remember the review. Yeah. It sounds like a Robbie Collins yeah, review. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Well, I just thought it was atrocious. But I suppose for some people, there are so many starry cameos in it. It's quite fun. Oh, Matt Damon. Oh, Sam Neill. Oh, Melissa McCarthy. Oh, Idris Elba. Uh, they're popping up all over the place. That's mm. quite fun. Um, but really, I just found who were, I mean, you and I love Buster Keaton. We know what great comedy is. And his idea was to think the audience knew what gag was coming and then mm-hmm. to trick them. And for Love and Thunder, it's not like that. They say, ha ha ha, here's a gag, and you get the gag. Yes. There's just no wit in this film at all. Oh. James, what a great, I'm sorry. I'm what a sorry. Great what a great shame. And tell me again how much it cost. 250 million. And to which you normally, as a rule of thumb, double that when you take into well, the account how much they're yeah. spending on the marketing and promotion. Yeah. But it's so, doing yeah, incredibly well half, and it's doing better half than a, half a billion dollars. Extraordinary. 
Yeah, I know. I know. Well, let's take a, a breather while we reflect on that. We'll be back with more <laughs> business of film in a moment. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Business of Film. I'm in conversation with James Cameron Wilson. Now, James, right back at the beginning, you talked about how while Thor was doing thunderous business at the box office, <laughs> get what I did there, um, other films had suffered. So what, what's number two? And has that seen a Well, number drop? two had dropped by 59%, which was last week's number one, Minions, The Rise of Gru, mm. which obviously has got something right because the five-year-olds apparently are loving it, but it's also causing a lot of trouble in cinemas as people sort of imitate the mischievous behaviour of the uh, eponymous yes. minions. Yes. But it made 4.3 million over the weekend with a total of 18.5 million quid now. At two, uh, three rather, we've got Elvis, which was at two, down 55%, which made 1.3 million pounds last weekend with a total of 138 million which i liked up to a point i just don't think it really got under the skin of the real character that was elvis mm. aaron presley and i think tom hanks was miscast really as lots of people it. have been telling i haven't seen it yet. lots of people have been saying it's certainly very long it, it, it is long yeah it's two hours 60 minutes uh, no sorry it's 160 minutes right yes that's quite quite long yeah there's two hours 40 but much better is the film at number four, Top Gun Maverick, which was at number three, down 62%, made about a million pounds over the weekend for a total of 70.6 mil. Now the 15th highest grossing film of all time in the United Kingdom. And it's really, it's really good. I actually enjoy, I know I'm in a minority, but the film at number five, Jurassic World Dominion, which was at number four, I enjoyed even more. But as you know, I love dinosaurs, but I thought it had a great villain in Captain uh, mm. Campbell Scott. This was down 69% with a total of 31.7 million, which is the last of the sextet, we are told. We will see. At number six, we've got Lightyear, which I think is probably, of all the Pixar films yet, got the worst reviews, which is not saying much. It's still so much more of a pleasure than Minions, The Rise of Gru. That was at number five, <laughs> down 74% with a total of 9,029,000. At number seven, we've got The Black Phone, which is an, about another child killer played by Ethan Hawke, down 64% with a total of 3.2 million pounds, mm. which I thought was very well made, quite creepy and sinister. I wasn't really gripped as much as I felt I should be. I wasn't scared. But I, I quite enjoyed it for a genre piece. At number eight, we have a new film called London Nahi Juwanga, which is a very long romantic drama from Pakistan. 
Mm-hmm. And we have another new film at number nine, which is Brian and Charles, which is the winner of the Audience Award at Sundance London. The story of a lonely inventor in North Wales who creates a robotic friend out of a washing machine. Yes. With a mannequin's head. You don't, you don't sound really excited. Well, no, I, I've read something about it, but I've no idea if it's any... It's a very low budget. It, it's got quite some kind reviews. Well, that's, and it certainly I mean, sounds unusual. Getting to number nine for a sort of low-budget British movie is not that bad, I guess. Well, I think you'll be really surprised what is at number 10, which is the re-release, now that they've been restored, courtesy of 4K restoration. Mm-hmm. Two old films, one from 1965 and one from 1966. One stars Roy oh, It's a Carson. double bill? Yeah, it's a double bill. It went out on a special release. Ah, one, oh, oh, I can guess what it is then, because there's only one movie I can ever remember. I'm trying to remember which one it is, but I think it's Doctor Who and the Daleks. Uh, yes, it's Doctor Who and the Daleks, 65, as well as Doctor no, Who. Sadly, not much Dalek. tap dancing in it. I was very disappointed. <laughs> Daleks Invasion Earth, 2150 AD, both with Peter Cushing playing the Time Lord, with Roy Castle in the first film, and Bernard Cribbins, in the oh, second yes. film. Yes, yes. They aren't terribly good, but they, <laughs> but they have, have enormous a nostalgic charm power. For those of, yes, for those who remember them from the time, certainly, yes. And so different from the current um, Doctor Who, or any of the more, more modern versions. Um, and that's actually number 10 in the chart. As a yeah, yeah, it's amazing. I know it played at the Barbican and the various places around the country. Though presumably nothing like as much as Thor took in. Uh, no. It made a total of 64,730 at 300. Well, not sure that's going to pay for the restoration, even, but um, well, know, I'm sure. I, I wonder out, how much it costs online. to restore a film nowadays. Because nice. Eureka Entertainment, as you know, mm. often send us restored copies, which is great. Uh, anyway, yes. having been so disappointed by the recent multiplex attractions, mm. I decided to rummage through my library to see if there was a recent title mm. I may not have seen when it first turned up in my letterbox. Mm. And to my surprise, I came across an award-winning film called Donbass from Ukraine. It oh. seemed about as timely a moment as any to catch up with it. And it is currently available to buy and rent on Sky Store and to stream on BFI Player. Although not an easy watch, Donbass reinstated my love of the cinema. Set in the Russian-speaking region of Donbass, it plays out like a documentary, divided into 13 chapters and unveiled like a series of disconnected snapshots, revealing what life is like in eastern Ukraine. The film opens in a trailer where the cast is being made up in what is revealed via a, a caption as an occupied territory in eastern Ukraine. While the various participants bicker with each other, they are promptly put in their place by an AD who yells at them to get moving, dismantling any potential delusions of lovey grandeur. What follows is akin to a series of short documentaries where we meet different citizens undergoing different travails. There are the sound of explosions off screen, talk of corruption and fake news and civil strife throughout. The scariest scenes 
are those various checkpoints where the military ride roughshod over what is civically appropriate. Should the passenger on a bus, on a public bus, really be expected to strip at an army checkpoint? But what gradually emerges is that the enemy are the fascists to the West. And I began to get the uncomfortable feeling that I was being force-fed some Russian propaganda. But this really was Donbass, and the streets and the civic buildings were not recreated just for the film. The man behind the camera, Sergei Loznista, won the Best Director Award at Cannes, and he does conjure up a chilling reality, even when, when flecked with moments, some moments, of black humour. We are asked to make up our own minds, but when a Ukrainian national is tied to a post in the street, and as, as an example of a bloodthirsty adversary, what follows does not show human nature in a good light. Officialdom runs riot, picking on random citizens in the name of a beleaguered fatherland, turning the region into a living hell, really. Meanwhile, the conditions of the public squeezed into unsanitary bunkers is not for the squeamish. Mm where several downtrodden families live in a labyrinth of rooms, sleep in rows of bunks, and share just one lavatory, which happens to be broken. But what is perhaps most surprising about the film is the period during which it is set, which is the winter of 2017, 2018. It is horrific to contemplate that this barren hellhole will be an even worse place to live in today. This is cinema at its most believable, compelling, challenging, and ambiguous, and, and certainly original. And as I say, it is available to rent and buy on Sky Store and to stream on BFI Player. I was completely gripped by it and just terrified to think what it must be like now. Yeah, okay, James. Um, well, good that there's a film that almost restored your faith in cinema um you said there was some some black humor is it actually a black comedy or you, you i i think it is i think there is it, it is meant to be a black comedy making fun at the russians but it only sort of i, I don't want to give too much away but that became apparent uh, as the film went along but i would like to mention very briefly that i was mm. very privileged to be invited to a party which i think i told you i was going to which was celebrating the 90th birthday of the film critic Derek Malcolm, mm. who used to write for the, the Guardian and then he moved on to the Evening Standard and yes. it was just a lovely event and a lot of names you would have recognised, a lot of old faces, but as mm. well as that there was um, a few film directors playing, paying their respects and all this was put on by the British Film Institute at the South Bank and oh, it was really lovely. Splendid. And Derek Malcolm, is, even though he's now in his 91st year, he is still going strong and still working. And we had Gorinda Chadder, who I had a chat with. I spent an hour and a half talking to Terry Gilliam, who was there, mm. paying his respects. Um, Stephen Frears was there. Danny Boyle was there. And it was a wonderful That's event. Splendid, because there, there um, aren't that many of the old-style film critics who sort of have respect both with readership and also with the film industry. This is true. Yeah, there's um, Derek Malcolm, um, Simon Rose, James Cameron. <laughs> yes, yes, there, yes. There aren't many, I know. Yeah. And um, I'd just like to pay my 
give my congratulations to Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons, who got married this week, married at the Golden Eye Luxury Resort in Jamaica, having first, of course, played husband and wife in the TV series Fargo. And then since then, they produced two sons together, mm-hmm. Ennis and James, and another marital partnership on screen in Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog, and they finally um, tied the knot. All right. Well, congratulations to them. James, thank you very much indeed. So next week we will be seeing how the uh, the heat wave has affected It's going to be even worse. Cinema. Have, we got any big, have we got big films coming out next week or people well, the only fighting film, shy? Because of well, thought. I think they're still fighting shy because they've got such so many big blockbusters at the moment. So uh, the biggest release we will have is The Railway Children Return oh, yes. with Jenny Agutter in her th- third Railway Children film. Because there was a remake, and that this is now the sequel to the original, in which she plays the mother that Dinah Sheridan originally played in the Lionel Jeffries version. James, thank you very much. We'll find more out about that at the same time next week. My thanks to James Cameron Wilson. Did you just look at me? Did you? Look at me! Look at me! How dare you! Close your eyes! There are no two words in the English language more harmful then good job. The uh, stuff that dreams are made of. <laughs>